You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's podcast is sponsored by my new favorite animated TV show, Tuttle Twins, the first cartoon series to teach kids principles of freedom, economics, and liberty, and to be funny in the process. Nowadays, hidden political agendas are constantly forced on your kids in entertainment and in schools. Tuttle Twins is a hilarious cartoon series that teaches kids about the principles of freedom without being overly preachy. It's educational and hilarious, and there are lots of jokes for adults too. The best part? You can watch Tuttle Twins entirely for free. Just go to TuttleTwins.tv, that is TuttleTwins, T-U-T-T-L-E, T-W-I-N-S dot TV, and over there, you can watch all of the episodes for free. One more time, that's TuttleTwins.tv. Highly recommend it. Go check it out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a pain, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a brilliant guest hailing from the UK, and this is Dr. Rakib Essan. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Zuby. Awesome, man. So, Rakib, for people who are not familiar with you, please tell them a little bit about you. So, my background, Zuby, I focus on matters of social cohesion, race relations, and public security. Uh, especially in the British context. Uh, my PhD looked at the impact of social integration for non-white ethnic minorities living in Britain. So mainly I'm primarily interested in matters of social policy and I also have a quite a strong focus on the effects of family breakdown, which is something I think is not talked about very much at all in British social policy circles. Awesome. And uh, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you, uh, before you got into all of this work, what's the story behind it all? Well, I was uh, lived m uh, most of my life in Luton, which I just found out you're actually uh, born in these neck of the woods. <laughs> um, a, a very, a very interesting place to be raised in. Uh, there's been a fair share of problems with Islamist extremism, but also far right extremism. 
the English Defence League was created uh, in my hometown. So I think naturally in that sense, um, I'm very interested, I was naturally interested in matters of social cohesion, how to develop bonds of social trust and mutual respect between different ethnic, racial and religious groups. Uh, and that's naturally, um, that's something that I carried into much of my academic work uh, at university. Uh, and in that sense, I'm, I'm also very interested in how to build stronger relationships between citizen and state. Uh, this is something that you've talked about a great deal, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. I do feel those bonds have become increasingly under strain. So I'm very passionate about people believing in their public institutions and feeling that those institutions are responsive to their needs and grievances. Awesome. What was it like growing growing up in Luton for you? Because I was born there, but I've actually spent very little time in the city. Um, and I didn't actually primarily grow up in the UK myself. So mm. what was life like and how have you seen it change over time? Well, I think that I've talked about those extremist influences in the town. But I'd say that overall, we have a very tolerant, communitarian, law-abiding majority. Uh, I wouldn't choose to be raised anywhere else in the world, and I, I genuinely mean that. Uh, I think that you have communities uh, which are deeply family-oriented, uh, civic-minded, and I think in that sense, because we, ha we have that strong anti-extremist resilient core in the town, that's helped to neutralise that extremist threat, um, both mm. uh, in the in, in terms of Islamist extremism and and the far right uh, as well. I, I think that on the whole, it, it's it's a fantastic place uh, to be raised. I call it hyper diverse. But mm. ultimately, for example, the football club, which is doing incredibly well at the moment, pushing to get promoted to the Premier League, um, it's a very important local institution, and it's those kind of local institutions that help to bring together people of different backgrounds, and I think it's beautiful to see. Awesome. Why do you think it is that Luton, of all the cities in the UK, has become this hotbed, as you said, for various types of extremism? What is it that has that's created that? Is that simply a result of such a wide level of diversity, or, or is it something else? I think that, Zubi, I think that it's similar to other parts of the country. Um, there is a great deal of residential segregation um, mm. in towns such as Luton. I think another town that would spring to mind is Blackburn um, up in Lancashire, mm. where you have uh, what I would consider to be parallel societies. You have communities living together um, in the same town, but they, but they interact with each other in a, in a, in a very minimal way. I, th I think that's certainly the case in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think naturally uh, in a town where, which I'd consider to be predominantly working class, um, you combine that with the, comp you know, the perceived competition for resources and you have groups which don't, in that uh, positive intergroup contact isn't really taking place. It can breed suspicion of the unknown. And, and I think in turn that provides fertile, fertile ground for extremists to really make headway with their divisive otherizations of different mm. ethnic and religious groups. Yeah. So tell me more about how you got involved in this work. So I understand, I understand the background and what could lead to some interest in it, but what made you decide to pursue this as a career? Well, I'm, I'm very passionate about um, having strong levels of social cohesion uh, in Britain, it's, it's, it's a country that I, I care about a great deal. Uh, I, I care a great deal about uh, maintaining 
high levels of uh, cohesion in towns such as Luton. Because the reality mm. of the matter is, while people talk about the enriching uh, impact of diversity, diversity can also bring its complications. And I think all too often when you raise that, people say, oh, but that's very bigoted to say, or mm. rather, this is something that's very controversial. But it's reality, Zuby. Yeah, and I think that if you have groups that they're not having those positive forms of contact with one another, whether it's um, in the workplace or it's in schools or whether it's in those kind of um, sort of civic settings in our local communities. I think that's quite a problem. Uh, Britain, as you know, has a fairly comprehensive welfare state. But I think in order to sustain um, collectivistic endeavours such as a welfare state, you need strong levels of trust. Yes. between different groups i think of different groups believe that oh the values that i hold dearly that's not really shared by a different group in society it's almost that you're under that sort of undermining of social cohesion can actually weaken support for the welfare state so mm. i think in that sense i'm a bit of a left conservative i have quite uh traditional conservative views but i do believe that we should take care of the neediest in society i believe mm. in having a, a well-funded high-performing education system which is funded um by the state so i think in that sense my sort of core beliefs uh, that's motivated much of the work that i've done and i think that that's ultimately taken me on this path where i really want to champion these causes in the think tank world uh, in the think tank world uh, based in london and also in influential pol uh, social policy circles mm. i'm so happy you brought up this point of diversity bringing challenges yeah. because yeah. i think for the past 10 years or so there are certain buzzwords which have been very very popular diversity mm. inclusion equality tolerance and i think people like to talk about them on a very shallow and Absolutely. superficial level, right? People just like to say diversity is our strength. Diversity is wonderful, mm. but they don't really like to define the terms or acknowledge. Okay, well, when you say diversity is our strength, what do you what do you mean by that? Absolutely. When you say diver when you say diversity, what do you mean? Do you just mean different skin colors? Do you mean different ideologies? Mm. Do you mean different nationalities? What 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 specifically do you mean? And also, what are the challenges? I mean, obviously, mm. if you take people of differing cultures, languages backgrounds, ethnicities, classes, all all types, ideologies, and you mm. put them all in one place, sure, there can be good things that come out of that, but people are going to bump heads, people are going to clash, people are going to misunderstand each other, some people are going to fear each other or have certain prejudices and so on. Mm. So I, I feel like it's been this very one-way conversation just on a shallow level of saying, oh, your diversity is great, inclusion is great, um, but not people not really wanting to address the concerns some people have. And I think actually, I think by not addressing some of those concerns, that is something that in my opinion, can give rise to more extremism, right? So genuine hyper-nationalistic far-right mm. factions and things like that, whether it's in the UK or elsewhere, I think if those people sort of in the middle and in the center fail to address or are completely unwilling to talk about any of the people's concerns, then it kind of gives more power to people who are more extreme to say, oh, look, okay, well, here's why they're not talking about it. And then they can kind of spool all these other ideas and kind of get more people on board. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that when people champion diversity, but you actually ask them to explain what you're championing, they struggle mm. very quickly. Um, I, I think on, I think on a superficial level, Cultural diversity, it can add vibrancy to a community, whether it's in terms of 
um cuisine for example but that, mm. i'd say that that's quite superficial if i'm being yeah, superficial, but, yeah. but i think when you're talking about um almost what i consider to be moral relativism um i, I think that you could you can stumble into some very serious problems mm. i think that i think britain is particularly weak at this where we don't really have a common robust moral cultural standard um you have people saying that this cultural practice is as valuable as another cultural practice. That's not necessarily true. And I, and I say this as someone who, who is of Bangladeshi Muslim origin. There are certain cultural practices even within um, you know, minority communities, which, which should be called out. And, and I think that when we're looking at, uh, for example, um, religious extremism, I, I think that all too often we've been paralyzed uh, by the forces of um cultural and religious sensitivity in a way in terms of calling out practices i'll, I'll give you one example uh, female genital mutilation um mm -hmm. honor-based violence i think these are the, these are problems which still exist in modern day britain and i think that if we had taken a more robust approach in terms of assessing the drawbacks of multiculturalism the, instead of um how do you say prioritizing difference over cohesion then we would have been better able to tackle those kind of practices so I, I do feel that when people say, you know, diversity is an unadulterated good, um, I, I don't completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when it comes to that uh, diversity, equality and inclusion space, um, which has developed in recent times, I think you very, you very quickly find out that people are in that space are not necessarily pro-diversity at all, especially when it mm -hmm. comes to viewpoint mm -hmm. um, diversity. Uh, I also feel that it, I'm, I'm a big believer in equality of opportunity, but I think all too often it, it's ultimately about an equalization of outcomes, mm -hmm. which which I think is something that we, we should oppose in the strongest of terms. And the same thing with uh, inclusion. I, I'll give you an example, Zubi. In the National Health Service, we have diversity, equality and inclusion professionals, uh, but, but their focus isn't really about, for example, knocking down cultural barriers, to healthcare services that marginalized communities need. It's more about talking about white privilege within the mm. National Health Service, um, which is quite remarkable because some of the poorest um, communities in the UK where the healthcare services are crumbling are predominantly white. So I think that we really need to examine what people mean when they talk about diversity, equality and inclusion in modern day Britain. Yeah, most definitely, man. When you when you talk about cohesion, which is a word you've mm. used quite a few times, um, what what exactly do you mean by that? What does that what does that cohesion look like to you? Because something I, I wonder in these conversations is, mm. you know, same with the word multiculturalism. Because you know, the UK, the UK does have a culture. You know, Great Britain mm. does and should have its own culture, and within that, there's of course a level of diversity and what you could consider multiculturalism. But again, in one way, you know, if multiculturalism is, is too deep and exaggerated, mm. then it, it doesn't work, right? Because you just get this complete clash of cultures and values and some of these things that you've already discussed, that doesn't, that, that doesn't work. I mean, I, I grew up in the Middle East, I grew up in Saudi mm. Arabia. And when I was in Saudi Arabia, and my family was there, and there are all these other um, expats from all over the world, you recognize, okay, I'm, I'm in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia does have certain laws and rules and customs and ways of doing things. Mm. So we will, we will respect that. It doesn't mean that you 
have to completely suppress your own culture and beliefs and so on. But there are just certain aspects of it that it's yeah. like, okay, this is something that take something off, you know, drink, drinking alcohol, right? Drinking alcohol or during Ramadan, you know, not going around and eating a cheeseburger and drinking a Pepsi in public, right? Just, just basic things, how, yeah, how you yeah. dress, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, yeah. um, there are things that I would wear in the UK or I'd wear in the USA, like a tank top, you know, I go to the gym, I'll, I'll wear a tank top or something like that. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear that if I'm going out. Yeah, it's a respectful thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it's respectful. I'm, I've got a gold, gold chain out right now, right? I might just, you know, tuck that in to, to respect the culture a little more. And for me, mm. that's, that's fine. So there are little compromises that need to be made to ensure that cohesion. And so absolutely, it, it, can, it can work in a way. But I think, it, again, that's something people have to acknowledge. Um, it can't just be, all right, let's just throw people from all over the world together in this one place and magically hope that Absolutely. they're going to get on. Uh, that, and, and I think that the way you described it there is, is it, it perfectly represents some of the problems that we have in the UK. I think we've mm. had a laissez-faire approach uh, to multiculturalism in that sense. I think another term that you used was just to prove to be very useful is deep multiculturalism. Mm. I think that what I talked about before, I think on a more superficial level, cultural, cultural diversity can add a great deal of value. Yeah. Um, to a local community but if it's deep-seated multiculturalism to the extent that different groups are that, that their primary values are so different mm -hmm. i think that can place social cohesion under strain and i think you've made a really good point about those little compromises which they sound little but they go a long way yes. when it when it comes to building trust between different communities i, I think that those little uh, compromises count for a lot uh, uh, something that I talked about earlier, being of Bangladeshi Muslim origin, I don't think there's any harm, for example, being proud, someone being proud of their um, Bangladeshi uh, culture, the Bengali mm -hmm. culture, or indeed, you know, Islam forming an important part of their daily life. But I think it's more that if because of your um, ethnic background or your religious beliefs, you treat certain groups differently or in my view, you start treating them unfairly, mm -hmm. I think that what that is what needs to be called out. I think that if you believe that because you follow a certain belief system or you have a certain ancestral background, that you're somehow superior mm -hmm. to a fellow citizen, I think that I, I definitely, that, that that's where the red line really needs to be drawn, uh, Zubi. So I think that's what I mean by cohesion. I think people can take pride um, in their own personal background, their religious affiliation, but if it impacts on how they treat fellow citizens in their own country, then I think there, I think that is um, anti-cohesion in nature. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fantastic point. And funnily enough, I think it's it's interesting because we're in this weird climate where it's uh, you know myself and yourself both being British, but you know not being not being white British, mm -hmm. um, we we actually have this type of. Uh, protection almost in a way right it's it's easier for us to discuss topics like this honestly i think because there are certain charges and accusations that you know can't be leveled can't really be levied at us or if they are it it falls flat right someone might try to call you know myself or yourself a, a white white supremacist or something, <laughs> so, but but it, it's, it's it comes across ridiculous right whereas if it this does, were yeah. two, two white people having this discussion then oh people you know so it gets very um you know people very quickly mm. want to dismiss all of the concerns as some type of racism or xenophobia 
um, or hatred, mm. which is which is not fair. You know that that's not fair. Um, you know that's a that's an overcorrection that people always need to be cautious mm. of and watchful for. And I think that's something that has arisen to some degree in places like Luden over the past couple decades. There there have been those factions. You you mentioned mm. the English Defence League. Of course. of course, you know going further back in time, there have been things like you know the British Nationalist Party, which was mm. actually had actually actually promoted white nationalism and so on. Mm. Um, and I, I think with many issues in society in general, we we always need to be cautious about the overcorrection. I, I think we, there's often overcorrections, many of them over the past decade, where in an attempt to supposedly address one issue, you go so far overboard and create a whole new set of problems. Um, mm. I think that there's been an overcorrection in the conversations around around race and ethnicity conversation or, or and racism i think there's been overcorrection i think the whole past two years with covid was an overcorrection i think there's been lots of overcorrections with uh with modern day feminism overcorrections with uh, lots of this gender ideology stuff that's yeah. going on it just seems to be overcorrection after overcorrection and those can those can have very negative consequences and they can also breed resentment because i i think fewer I think few things breed more resentment than people thinking, people believing they're not being listened to, right? They have concerns, mm, right? They, they have concerns, they have worries, and every time they try to raise them, people shut them down or they call them names or they disparage them and so on. And I think that that can lead to bad and nasty places. No, absolutely. And I, I think that you know you you've really touched on something very important that that resentment that can be created from that feeling of not being listened to, especially mm. by the political establishment. Uh, I, I do feel that, I, I, I do agree with you in that, in, in some ways we can get away with saying things that white people might not be able to get away with in this current climate. I think yeah. that's that's the truth of it. Uh, I, I feel that when it comes to my personal background, um, I can, for example, make criticisms in terms of, say, extremism within British Muslim communities, which are predominantly non-white communities. Mm -hmm. I can make those criticisms that someone who is white British, they may feel uncomfortable in terms of making those criticisms because of their background. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's uh, completely fair, um, if, if, if truth be told. Uh, I, I think that if you live in a uh, multiracial democracy such as ours, uh, ultimately, the the points you make, uh, if they are perfectly legitimate and reasonable, you should be free to air them. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't feel like, oh, because of my background, I'm not able to articulate my particular viewpoint, a viewpoint which could may even add value to mm -hmm. the to, to the broader uh, debate. So, so I do feel that in, in that sense, if you're talking about cultural marginalization, I think some of the most culturally marginalized communities in the UK are probably those left behind white working class communities, mm -hmm. especially in deindustrialized areas. And I suspect that dynamic might be quite similar in the United States as well. Yeah, I, I, th I think it is, um, especially in, you know, because it's not, um, yeah, we, we live, we live in a very, a very strange and interesting time because every group and, you know, I, I fully understand this grievance because it's, it's fair, right? Yeah. Um, every group, every group, um, with the exception of, of straight white men or white people in general is sort of quote unquote allowed to mm. have advocacy groups 
and is, and is allowed to sort of play this identity politics mm. game. Um, and I, I don't think that's, um, I, I don't really think it's sustainable in, in that no. way. I, I think that ultimately it creates, like I said, this, this, this resentment over time. And when people are just beating white people with a stick constantly accusing them of white privilege mm. or, you know, saying just just say, saying stuff that you wouldn't be allowed to it wouldn't be socially acceptable to say about mm. another an, any other group of people you know i mean you, you can go on social media any day and you can just see awful very broad brush stuff being said about and it's like wow if you said that about black women or black men or mm. a- asian people or jewish people or what like you you'd be you'd be in trouble right people wouldn't be okay with it but it's like oh well they targeted white guys so you know that's fine. And I don't know. Um, I also think it's deeply hypocritical because if the, if the goal is equality, if mm. the goal is equality and fair treatment and non-discrimination, that should fly in all directions. Like, that should I, fly I, across right? the board. Yes. And that's something I really, I really respect about your work and your words that I've seen out there, which is that, you know, you, you the direction doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. You have so many people, honestly, like many people on the modern left now who have this, it's not an equalist perspective. It's like, okay, well, it's, they'll even say, you know, you can't be racist to white people, for example. Yeah. Right. That sort There's of power statement. structures. Yes. Power because, structures. you know, privilege and power and so on. Like they, they do this mental gymnastics <laughs> that suddenly makes it okay to say something really, yeah. really horrible about this demographic. Absolutely. But if that same thing were said to another demographic, then all, oh, you know, they'll, they'll be the first to, to jump on you and accuse you of everything. I'm like, look, like if, if we're going to be equal, let's be equal. Let's be fair. Like let's, let's not be nasty to anybody. Let's not make these huge sweeping statements about generalizations, yeah. generalizations about any group. I don't care if they are, I don't care what, what religion it is. I don't care what skin color, what, like, let's not, let's just not play that game. It's been very, very nasty in the past been very nasty in many places around the world we can see where it leads so let's not you know toot this horn about equality diversity inclusion and kindness and then not play it like let's actually let's let's live it i care less about what Mm. what nice phrases people are saying and i'm more watching okay how do you actually treat people how do you actually talk about other people that's really what matters no absolutely and i think just just touching on white privilege theories i think completely redundant mm. in, the, in the british perspective um, from a social in, in terms of social policy uh, the, the the white male is portrayed as a hyper advantaged section of british society mm-hmm. but when you actually look at for example educational outcomes um, attainment eight scores which is the average score across eight gcc level uh, qualifications uh, white working class boys are doing terribly yeah. you know, that's the truth of it well you have a range of ethnic minorities uh, coasting ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, when you look at levels of life expectancy, uh, white men fare a lot worse than a range of um, r- racial slash gender groups mm-hmm. uh, as well. So I-, I think that when you look at, and, and another example actually come to think of it is um, suicide uh, ideation, uh, where, and suicide risk and levels of self-harm, that tends to be higher uh, within the broader white population when compared to the uh, broader Asian and black, uh, black population mm-hmm. uh, in the UK. Probably so really homelessness feel, as well, I imagine. I haven't well, seen the stats, I, but I, it looks I, like I think it. it goes on and on. So I think mm. it really proves that 
white privilege uh, as a theory. That is all it is. And I think it's remarkable that some people present it as as a sort of incontestable fact mm. uh, from a social policy perspective. Uh, it really isn't. I, I, I talk a great deal about the importance of family structure, stable yes. family structures, um, and how that can pave the way uh, for young people to do well at school, um, build more robust forms of mental health, physical well-being, not being involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, the, the, if you look at rates of family breakdowns, Zubi, they're particularly low within an, a range of non-white communities, um, relatively low compared to the white British mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I do think one of the finest advantages you can have in life is belonging to a stable and loving family unit. So I think that what white privilege does, it places race at the forefront of very important debates on very complex forms of social and economic disadvantage. We need to look at things such as family structure, what kind of community that you're raised in, whether mm -hmm. or not it's a high trust or a low trust community. Um, for example, what's the level of public and private sector investment in your neighborhood in terms of creating opportunities for mobility? But I, I, I gather that those um, those kind of factors are not quite as fashionable as race. Man, and fashionable is the right word for it, because we, we live in this very funny time, Rakib, where everything you're saying to me is is commonsensical um yeah. and it's also what i was raised with from from very young i mean i grew up in where i was raised in saudi arabia from from the beginning i was surrounded by people of different races ethnicities backgrounds nationalities religions just from the beginning right right like so i'm always kind of gobsmacked like i i'm somewhat shocked even though it's been even though it's been many years i'm still shocked when i see in countries like the uk or us these uh, these modern western countries and a lot of the the rhetoric and even some of the policies and things that people are advocating for are so regressive compared mm. to what i grew up with when i'm suddenly hearing people having these conversations weird conversations about about race or mm. uh, you know they i was talking to someone I, I recorded a podcast with um, a, a young American woman yesterday, and um, she was telling me about how when she was in high school at the age of 14, they had some activity where they, they, they had to go into different rooms based on their race, right? Racially segregated rooms to have um, certain conversations about, you know, their race and their 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 place in their oppressor victimhood hierarchy and so on there are universities with with in the usa right now where they have racially segregated spaces i'm in the world Safe of music spaces. yes I'm, I'm in the world of music i've seen music events where you charge where they're charging white people higher ticket prices no Yes. Really? Really? I'll find that absolutely <laughs> remarkable. remarkable. I don't want any of that coming into the UK. If I'm being exactly. And, and, and that's why, you know, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in the US now and I have a, I have a, a large American following, but I, I keep a close eye on it because as we know, I think a lot of Americans don't understand why people in the UK and other nations are, are interested mm. in what's going on with their social, cultural and political environment. And actually it's because if we're being honest, a lot of these ideas, they come from the USA, right? This notion of white privilege mm. and this idea of everything being white supremacy. And like th th these are, these are 
they're fringe these American are key ideas. US exports now. Yes, these are US exports. And then a couple of years later, I you start seeing it in the UK, and all of mm. a sudden these words and this language is and this framework is being applied, even with things like uh I mean, if you remember, just think back to 2022 after uh, mm. the George Floyd killing and mm. you had these BLM, BLM chapters coming up in, in the UK and in mm. Australia and Austria, places where they barely even have black people. Um, and, and you're trying to sort of retrofit this idea into mm. the UK. And I'm, I'm like, this this whole movement doesn't even really make sense for the UK. Like, It really doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I, I, just to show how brainless this kind of importation of US uh, racial culture politics is, we had BLM demonstrations in the UK where protesters were chanting, don't shoot, mm-hmm. at British police officers, majority of which are unarmed. And they support that model of being unarmed as well. The vast mm-hmm. majority do. So I think that really demonstrates that, that the US is, is a society irrespective of uh, you know people's views on the uh, right to uh, right to bear arms um you have uh, a high levels of gun ownership in the po- in the in, in the in the mainstream population and i think i think naturally that means the us police is operating on a very different environment mm-hmm. when compared to the british police where we mm-hmm. where in the uk we do have uh, strict gun controls so i, I think w- w- what you see there is I-, I think the problem with the uk based anti racism movement they look to the US for far too much inspiration when it's a very different cultural and political context. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that really undermines the credibility of the anti-racism movement. I, I've seen I've seen um, acronyms such as BPOC being used by British anti-racists. So the <laughs> I, I stands for indigenous, which would yeah. be Native American in the, the US context. So if they're looking at minor, minority impression, the truly indigenous people are people, you know, Anglo-Saxons living mm, in the UK. Mm, yeah. So, so I, I, find it abs- I find it absolutely remarkable. I, I really yeah. do. So I, I, th- I think that what really ter- what that tells you is, I, I think that some of the things that are coming from um, US educational facilities, especially on um, race, uh, race-related matters, I, I think that it could be deeply corrosive for British uh, race relations. I, I don't think it's doing um, much good for US race relations, but mm. its importation in the UK is is something. I, I also feel it's weakening the British left in an electoral sense. Mm. Um, I, I think that this sort of overemphasis on race as a, as, a, as as a form of disadvantage it doesn't really reflect the reality of British society. Um, I think when you uh, the, the research that I've done personally shows that more broadly, non-white people in the UK are more satisfied with their life mm. and are more satisfied with the way democracy works in the UK when compared to the white mainstream. So I, I think it's really important that anti-racists they focus on. For example, I think there's a, there's a great deal to be said about how public institutions can be more responsive to the needs of an ever diversifying population. I think sure. that's very important. I think that in, in terms of police community relations, I, I think that practices such as stop and search, for example, mm-hmm. um, there's no harm in police forces actually um, interacting with civic associations and community groups, explaining why there are disparities in stop and search. That could be down to, um, you know, the kind of neighbourhood uh, that, that stop and search is taking place. Um, I, I do think that it's important for the police to develop um, strong ties with the communities that they serve especially when it comes to justifying um, the, the reasons why they're using practices such as stop and search. Mm-hmm. But, but I think those are the kind of things that the British anti-racism movement should really focus on. 
and ultimately keep the focus in, in terms of building stronger race relations in the UK, stronger state citizen um, bonds in the UK, as opposed to drawing inspiration from what I consider to be deeply divisive pseudo-intellectual movements in the US. Mm. And it's important to note that in the US, it's not helping, it's not helping in the US either. Mm. So, you know, not, not only is it not very relevant to the UK, it's also you're importing something that is not, that's not effective. That's actually, mm. as far as I'm concerned, very, very counterproductive in many ways. I would say that, you know, on a, on a surface level, I haven't done any deep analysis of this, but in the mm. US, it seems that over the past five to 10 years, certainly um, what you could call race relations have, have de declined. Um, mm. I think people seeing their cities burning on fire with protesters, you know, screaming and shouting and looting and all, that's not going to help make people's, you know, and, and someone can say, oh, that's only a small percentage of people doing it. But the, you know, the, the, um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? It, that, that doesn't, that doesn't matter in a way because that's what, that's what people see. Right. Mm. So, so just like, you know, and, and, and interestingly, people understand this in certain directions. So, you know, if, if anyone is being honest, and most people recognize that everyone recognizes that most police officers are not, um, you know, are, racist. Are, yes, are, are not racist and are, are not, you know, violent, you know, most, most police officers mm. are decent. However, um, a picture can be painted to make it look like, oh, wow. Okay. Like there is a ton of police brutality and police mm. violence and so on going. So, you know, there are certain things that are so awful that even if it is a small percentage of people doing it, if it's not it's being amplified. addressed properly. Yes, yes, yeah. it's, it's amplified and it paints this picture in people's brains mm. of what what the problem is. And that can be very mm. skewed and it can be amplified by the media and and so on. And, and I think the, a big problem with a lot of these issues is that if you can't diagnose the problem then you can't properly apply a solution or any solution mm, that you attempt, absolutely. any solution you attempt at best, it'll be futile at worst. It might actually be counterproductive. Um, mm. and sometimes doing nothing. I, I, I think sometimes people always feel they have to do something. And, and I'm like, you know, sometimes doing nothing is <laughs> sometimes doing nothing. Oh, I, I think, I think, I, th I think you make a very important point because I think this is also the problem with the anti-racism movement they almost feel like if we say oh, a great deal has been pro a great deal of progress has been made in terms of race relations mm -hmm. we live in the most uh, you know one of the most uh, uh, racially fair countries in the world they almost feel like they've lost they lose their own sense of purpose you know what is the what is the point of us existing mm -hmm. i actually make the point that there are there is still much to be done from a social justice perspective um, in in the UK, but my issue is that if if you overfocus on race, mm -hmm. this is the point that you made, that that actually you're missing out on some very serious social problems which are non-race related. Um, so, so for example, in the UK, when you look at ch um, children up to the age of fifteen of Black Caribbean origin, sixty three percent live in lone parent households. Mm -hmm. The corresponding figure for their peers of Indian origin, Zubi goes down to 6%. Yes. Now that's naturally going to have some impact on how the young people in those two ethnic groups, how they progress in life, um, whether it's education and, and employment, that is going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can see there that I feel that social justice movements in the UK, they don't really want to talk about family breakdown. 
because they see the family almost as a kind of over hierarchical re reactionary institution yes. when it when in it when it, uh, from my perspective it can provide the strongest form of belonging and rootedness for a young child mm -hmm. um being raised in the uk so so i think there what, what i would say is that they i call it the grievance industrial complex where ultimately you have it, it spans across a range of sectors where people are ultimately they're either profiteering um, or it's an it's a form of moral grandstanding um, by 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 ultimately opportunistically placing race at the heart of these very important debates on um, inequality and disadvantage. Yeah, absolutely, and it and it just it just misses the issue. Um, mm. You know, if someone is constantly looking through this racial lens, and there are people who promote the idea that everything in life, every human interaction, mm. everything, economic, social, mm. everything should be viewed through this primary Pris racial prism. lens. Prism of yes. race, yeah. Yes. And I'm just like that. That's insane. I mean, that's. That <laughs> it is. It is. It is insane. It, it, it's remarkable. Idea. The idea that racial identity is the primary determinant in the shaping of life chances in the UK. It, it, it's just it's intellectually inaccurate. Yes. that's the truth of it mm -hmm. I, I think even you know you can talk about socioeconomic class I, I almost think family structure trumps that in a way so I'll give I you an agree. example Zuby when it comes to school performance um, as you know you, you know you have pupils who qualify for free school meals um, if they're from a materially disadvantaged background mm -hmm. you have pupils in certain ethnic minority groups who are on free school meals who are performing better at school than um, white British children who are not on free school meals, who are not from materially disadvantaged backgrounds. So mm -hmm. you can even see there, I almost feel like family culture and community dynamics, they're overturning class-related disadvantages in, in a sense. Mm -hmm. so, so I really feel that this, this you know, the, you almost have this, this race industry that places racial identity at the heart and center of these very important debates on youth well-being and development um they're doing our communities a disservice because they refuse whether it's because of personal self-interest um or that they're just not very knowledgeable of the on the on the ground realities uh th th their diagnosis of the problem is far detached from the reality mm -hmm. i think what's really interesting with it all um you know out of the universities there's been this concept of intersectionality which has come out and what, what I find really funny about that idea is that it ultimately leads back to what we already know and have established, which is that the ultimate individual, is, the ultimate minority is the individual, mm. right? So there are all these different factors at play. Yes, you can look at nationality and socioeconomic class and family structure, and you can look mm. at race and identity and gender and sexuality and all of these. And if you, if you take all of them, what you come back to is the individual, right? Mm. Just because this person is a white boy and this person is a white boy, it doesn't mean that that they they have the same they have the same story and abilities Absolutely. and like they, they can be completely different, completely different challenges. Oh, this this is a black woman and here's another black woman. So therefore, there's this idea that you're supposed to believe that that makes mm. them extremely extremely similar. And I'm like, that is such a in, in it's fact, very dehumanizing. It's, yes, it, it's like this is going. This is this is going back to sort of race essentialism it is. <laughs> ideas from a from a hundred plus years this ago. This is regret. This is what you mean when you're saying earlier about yeah. we're regressing. 
yeah. um, in that sense, we, we really are. I, I, I think that, and, and I think this is a very important point, I think there's far too many people in the anti-racism movement, uh, and I don't, I don't wish to be overly insulting, who have performed quite in, in, in a fairly mediocre way in, in, their own, in their own personal life. And I think that the issue here is that um, rather than owning up to things that you, you could have done better in your own life, taking on personal responsibility, and and taking on individual initiative i think can be quite liberating but for some people um especially if they're dissatisfied with their own life circumstances um they would rather blame the system mm -hmm. it was the system's fault why i'm in this um problematic situation i wasn't able to achieve what i wanted to achieve because my school teachers weren't very good um i didn't receive the support i needed from the state Mm -hmm. Now, th th there may be degrees of truth in that, but ultimately, I, I feel that if you have the correct attitude as an individual, and I think I still think that's where family structure comes in, because luckily I was raised in a family unit, which encouraged me to take on personal responsibility, mm -hmm. um, not just about, you know, taking credit for your successes, you also have to own up to your failures. Yes. And I think that helps with personal growth and development at the end of the day. Um, so I think you make a very important point about the individual being lost in all of this. But I, I actually make this point that people want to de-emphasize the importance of the individual because it is in their personal interest mm. to peddle anti-system narratives. Yeah, I call it a permanent alibi. Yeah. Right. If you believe that the system and the structures and the institutions and everything is against you, Absolutely. whether you're whether you're a man or you're from this background or that background mm. or you're a woman or you're you're gay, you're black, whatever it is, right? They all have this, I like the term grievance industrial complex, right? But there's always, mm. you know, there's white supremacy, there's the patriarchy, there's systemic institutional structural racism, there's all these, and you never need to define them. You can just sort of mm. say this, you can just say the system. Very abstract, very yes, abstract. It's very, it's very abstract. You can just sort of say the system or, you know, the patriarchy or the white man or whatever. And people are like, mm, yeah, 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 you're right. You know, so every time you fail at something, you can just go back to blame mm. this. But to me, that's disempowering. And I personally, Absolutely. I personally find it insulting, right? I'm like, no, like I'm a, I'm a grown man, right? I'm a capable <laughs> human being, right? I'm, I can be accountable and responsible Absolutely. for the good things I do, the bad things I do. If I say something that's out of line, that's me. Nobody made me say it. If I do something that's great, cool, right? Like I, mm. I did that. I achieved it. Um, but I think with many people, as, as you said, they, they like to have this external locus of control, Absolutely. So that they then are not responsible nor accountable for any of their failures in mm. in particular. But it also means I think that they can't really take credit for their for their successes. And I mm. think that's ultimately a shame because, you know, I, man, I just want to see people I want I want to see people doing well. And I also mm. recognize Absolutely. that if you have a positive attitude and mindset, as you've alluded to, People will help you. And I think this is actually one of the most amazing things about this time that we live in, right? Most people, the truth is, I think most people just don't really, most people don't care about you enough to oppress you, right? Like yeah. most people are minding their business. Like they're, I think that's they're, a very good point. Right? That's a very well good point. Wait, actually, yeah. Most people are just minding their business, going about, mm. you, you walk into any city and you just see people rushing around, doing their thing, taking care of themselves, right? They're, they don't even have the time to... No be be bigoted towards you but it's actually quite the opposite if you are kind to people and you put in effort and you 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 are trying to do something good in the world i find that most people vast majority of people will want to help and support you yes there They'll will be reciprocate. critics 
they'll, yeah, they'll reciprocate. But if you have this really negative attitude that, oh, these people are out to get me, those people are out to get me, that will start to manifest, you know, because you won't, you won't, you won't treat people well, you'll talk down. And then as a result, they'll be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to, you know, this person's kind of nasty. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to. Well, it's, it's a very, it's a very miserable existence to lead um, mm. as well. And, and I think that this is the problem that I have with much, um, much of the British left, really, that their message isn't one of optimism no. and re resilience and determination. Mm. And, and I almost suspect, you know, people may well call me, uh, may well call me a cynic um, as a result of this, but I actually think that they would rather lock, for example, young ethnic minority Britons in terms of in, in them in encouraging them to do well at school. Um, make the most of the opportunities that you have in the UK. And mm -hmm. the UK, for all of its flaws, it has it has some of the strongest anti-discrimination protections in the world yes. when it comes to racial, ethnic and religious minorities. And, and it also has some of the most robust equality bodies in the world too. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, instead of uh, providing that optimistic message uh, in terms of, you know, doing the best you can, work hard at school, remain disciplined, stick to a routine, they're, they're, they're more focused on vilifying um, public institutions, mm. education systems. I, I, and, I, and I think it's because that they don't want, they want to dampen aspiration instead of mm. promoting it. They want to dampen uh, aspiration, aspirational attitudes because they feel that by doing so and then ultimately um, facilitating the growth of anti-system sentiments within mm. the younger politician, uh, younger population mm. that helps to expand their anti-racism movements. Mm -hmm. Maybe that, that is the, very sad to see. And maybe that's the real systemic racism. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think I think I, th I think that I, I think in a sense that the anti-racism movement, um, I think there's a balanced message. I think they mm -hmm. could say that we have made a great deal of progress in terms of race relations and equality of opportunity, but there is still much work to be done. Mm -hmm. but instead, what they do, they ultimately they, they, they want to overlook the progress that's being made and want to vilify the UK, which, as I said, I think that it has a very strong culture of anti-discrimination. Far more so than interestingly, and uh, than a number of uh, major European countries, yeah, which absolutely. some people in the UK seem to admire. Mm -hmm. But I think that really that 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 that's more down to the fact that they have these anti-British tendencies, and they look to continental Europe as an oasis of tolerance and openness. When I don't think that's necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, something I, a question I like to ask people is mm -hmm. what they are comparing things to, and. Mm -hmm. You know, so when someone says, uh, I don't know, there might be a debate on TV, is, is the UK a racist country? Right. Mm. And that'll be the that that's the debate. And I'm like, what does that sentence even mean? Compared to what? Mm. Right? Are you well, compared? Are, are you I think this point to me. If you're making an evaluation about the UK, what people are going to do, they're going to compare it to other countries. And that's when the UK fares quite well on those kind yes. of indicators. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, for example, if you take France, for example, Zubi, they don't even collect data on the grounds of race and ethnicity. <laughs> so if there's a particular problem within a racial or ethnic minority group mm -hmm. because of their culture of uh, almost this, this, this sort of rigid secular universalism, they almost feel like if we collect that kind of data, we start breaking down French society. Mm. So at least what Britain tries to do, they, they collect that data, they try and identify particular problems, which may be impacting more heavily on particular sections of society. Yes. So I, I, what I say when people say, I, I've heard people say that, oh, the, the UK is a terrible place to live as a Muslim. Firstly, that, there's polling which shows that three and four British Muslims believe that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim. Mm -hmm. So they're not even representative of the broader Muslim population. Mm -hmm. But when you compare 
um, the life circumstances of Muslims in other countries, um, you very quickly see that the majority of Muslims in the UK, they have it, they have it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, their, their life circumstances are far more favourable. So the point I make is that ultimately, when you talk about that statement, which is often peddled out, the UK is a racist country. Uh, compared to, to com, what, what country, what, what other countries mm-hmm. are you comparing it to? Um, we have a we have an impressive government minister here, which I'm sure that you're aware of, Kemi Badenoch, who's of Nigerian origin. Mm-hmm. Um, she recently said that Britain was the best place in the world to be if you're black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and this was this was treated with, you know, <laughs> people don't like that. <laughs> complete, complete outrage. Yeah. But then you have to make the point that. It, it, you know, when you look at the experiences of black people in other countries, mm-hmm. especially in their countries of origin, mm-hmm. what she said, is it truly controversial? I don't mm-hmm. think it is. No, it, it's it's not. And I, I think, I don't know, there's this, there is a strange self-flagellating mentality mm-hmm. that is in British culture. And I think perhaps some other Anglo societies where you're supposed to be so browbeaten and so guilty about mm. say maybe perhaps historical sins that um in in a way that many other countries are not by the way um yeah. <laughs> even if they should be perhaps um that you can't acknowledge or take pride in the progress or in mm. the good things i mean that statement that she made that should fill people with joy mm. And and it's it's an it's an accurate it's an accurate statement, right? To someone who who's like, hmm, okay, there's two two hundred or so countries in the world. I don't know, name five, or name or name name ten that you think um, you know would would be more favorable in that sense. Yeah, Uh, I think it's the same. I think that I think Britain is a fantastic place to live on the whole, being being mm -hmm. Muslim. Um, especially when you see the degree of religious uh, religious freedoms mm-hmm. which are offered under British democracy, and also those culture of anti discrimination protections on the grounds of uh, race, ethnicity, and religious belief. So, so I think that uh, you, you know, back in the day, the British left would celebrate this. Yeah. It, it really would. They, they would. they they would champion this progress. Uh, but but now, ethnic you know, a celebration of uh, British progress ethnic minority success mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 they can't even bring themselves yeah. to acknowledge it. they really can't because the, the problem with ethnic minority advancement it fundamentally undercuts their white privilege narratives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and i think you see, you see that in the us where um people of chinese origin are now being disc- of chinese mm-hmm. and indian origin two um ethnic groups are performing very well in the in the uk and the U, in the us being described as white adjacent <laughs> I mean, the mental gymnastics here is quite quite remarkable. I don't know if you've seen, Rakeeb, in some of the official statistics now, now white and Asian is one group. So they've actually, they've they've combined them in some of the, so if you look at some of the, some of the university, you know, they they keep all these data and analytics. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that over the past couple of years now, it's white and Asian. And then it's you know Hispanic. Yeah, black, I mean, I've and seen, so I've seen, I've, I've seen a great deal of data manipulation in my time, but that really takes a biscuit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to say, it's, it's quite, quite remarkable. But, but I think that that's that demonstrates the degree to which um, some elements of society they they, they almost they, they want to they want to conceal mm. um, forms of ethnic minority progress and achievement, and I think that's a crying shame because. In the past, the, what I couldn't consider to be the old-fashioned left, 
they'd celebrate ethnic minority success, successful forms of uh, economic integration, educational mm -hmm. advancement. But now, because they're so obsessed by their precious white privileged theories, mm -hmm. they dare not mention these forms of success. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Rakib, man, yeah, I would love to chat to you for, for so much longer, but um, where, can people, where can people find you online? Well, they can follow me on Twitter. Um, as you know, I'm ridiculously active on there. Um, <laughs> my handle is at R-A-K-I-B-E-H-S-A-N. And I'm, I'm also in the process of writing a book um, titled Beyond Grievance, and that can be pre-ordered on Amazon. Awesome. Dr. Rakib Hassan, thank you so much for coming on, man. Been great to chat to you. Thank you for having me. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.